So that's about compassion. Then there's a question about what's equitable and intelligent. Uh, one couldn't, from the point of view of Jewish history, not have in mind, as there have been European conferences about who will take whom and how many and the disagreements, have in mind the Evian conference called by President Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor in France in the summer of 1938, at which not only did virtually no country say they would take a greater number of people fleeing Nazi fascism, it actually allowed Goebbels to say in Germany, well, they complain that we don't like the Jews, but they don't want them either, which led almost directly to the escalation of violence against them. So there is an obligation, it seems to mind, to, be, to find an equitable way of sharing across humanity the care for what is a part of our own family. Happy New Year, and welcome back. In the first four sections of the first essay of On the Genealogy of Morals, covered in the last episode, despite bad pronunciations of German, Latin, and Greek, we got Nietzsche's idea of the source of the values good and bad. Being European and concerned as a philologist with the historical development of language, he was well suited to discuss the etymology of the words good and bad in Europe. Through historical and linguistic considerations, he concluded that these concepts came from the ruling classes in ancient societies, as they would have been in the best position to influence societal development by imposing social orders in line with their commonly held values. The so-called low-ranking or common people would have been forced to accept these decreed values along with whatever language was associated with them, which often included terms like good and noble, for example, as these words were strongly associated with people of high station, people who may have gotten there by birthright or by having conquered their way to the top. If you were a German citizen in the 1870s, you were likely surrounded by people who often expressed anti-Semitic sentiments. There were also attempts to develop scientific racist theories, the most notable in Germany concerning the so-called Aryan race. Results from craniometry, a scientific technique which measured skull shape and size, were used to promote racist theories. However, noted scientist and anthropologist Rudolf Virchow was also an anti-racist and used craniometry and other scientific techniques to discredit such racist theories. Post-World War II, talk of an Aryan race is largely dismissed as the rhetoric of racists. In 1870s Germany, though, it was, unfortunately, a popular topic of discussion. The German nationalistic fervor was everywhere, and Nietzsche found it hard to stomach. In Beyond Good and Evil, which he claims is required reading for understanding on the genealogy of morals, he wrote, quote, It is certain that the Jews, if they desired, or if they were driven to it, as the anti-Semites seem to wish, could now have the ascendancy, nay, literally, the supremacy over Europe, that they are not working and planning for that end is equally certain. Meanwhile, they rather wish and desire, even somewhat importunely, to be assimilated and absorbed by Europe. They long to be finally settled, authorized, and respected somewhere, and wish to put an end to the nomadic life, to the wandering Jew. And one should certainly take account of this impulse and tendency, and make advances to it, it possibly betokens a mitigation of the Jewish instincts, for which purpose it would perhaps be useful and fair to banish the anti-Semitic ballers out of the country. One should make advances with all prudence, and with selection, pretty much as the English nobility do. It stands to reason that the more powerful and strongly marked types of New Germanism could enter into relation with the Jews, with the least hesitation, for instance the nobleman officer from the Prussian border, 
It would be interesting in many ways to see whether the genius for money and patience, and especially some intellect and intellectuality, sadly lacking in the place referred to, could not in addition be annexed and trained to the hereditary art of commanding and obeying, for both of which the country in question has now a classic reputation. Unquote. Though we tend to find discussions like this distasteful in the 21st century, we can try to imagine the worldview of a European in the mid to late 19th century. And if we do, it seems Nietzsche had a profound respect for the way that, despite a long history of persecution, the Jewish people were able to survive by strongly adhering to their values, and that Germany would benefit most by accepting them and the power they could bring to their empire. Again, talk of imperial ambitions tends to make us uncomfortable, but such was the political climate in Germany at the time. Confirming his stance against anti-Semitism, in a letter to his sister, who was married to a noted anti-Semite, Nietzsche writes, quote, Your association with an anti-Semitic chief expresses a foreignness to my whole way of life, which fills me again and again with ire or melancholy. It is a matter of honor with me to be absolutely clean and unequivocal in relation to anti-Semitism, namely opposed to it, as I am in my writings. I have recently been persecuted with letters and anti-Semitic correspondence sheets. My disgust with this party, which would like the benefit of my name only too well, is as pronounced as possible. But the relation to Forster, as well as the after-effects of my former publisher, the anti-Semitic Schmeitzner, always brings the adherence of this disagreeable party back to the idea that I must belong to them after all. It arouses mistrust against my character, as if publicly I condemned something which I have favored secretly, and that I am unable to do anything against it. That the name of Zarathustra is used in every anti-Semitic correspondence sheet has almost made me sick several times. Unquote. In Aphorism 377, in the book The Gay Science, Nietzsche writes, quote, We who are homeless are too manifold and mixed racially, and in our descent, being modern men, consequently do not feel tempted to participate in the mendacious racial self-admiration and racial indecency that parades in Germany today as a sign of a German way of thinking and that is doubly false and obscene among the people of the historical sense. Unquote. Of course, history tells us that Germany's relationship with Jews in Europe came to the most shocking of results in the 1930s and 40s. And it's an unfortunate fact that some of Nietzsche's ideas, for example the concept of the Ubermensch, were promoted in Nazi ideology. Certainly, the creators of their poisonous doctrines were careful to exclude commentaries from Nietzsche like the one we just heard. You'll no doubt come to conclude that Nietzsche was full of elitist thinking, and the next few sections of our reading will include some uncomfortable language. But hopefully the sentiment contained in the preceding passages has given us reason not to be overcome by the cringeworthiness of some of the passages we'll hear today. Let's continue the first essay now. Section 5 Quote, with regard to our problem, which may on good grounds be called a quiet problem and one which fastidiously directs itself to few ears, it is of no small interest to ascertain that through those words and roots which designate good, there frequently still shines the most important nuance by virtue of which the noble felt themselves to be men of a higher rank. Granted that, in the majority of cases, they designate themselves simply by their superiority and power, as the powerful, the masters, the commanders, or by the most clearly visible signs of this superiority, for example, as the rich, the possessors. This is the meaning of Arya and of corresponding words in Iranian and Slavic. But they also do it by a typical character trait, 
and this is the case that concerns us here. They call themselves, for instance, the truthful. This is so above all of the Greek nobility, whose mouthpiece is the Megarian poet Theognis. The root of the word coined for this, ethslos, signifies one who is, who possesses reality, who is actual, who is true. Unquote. Footnote 2. Ethlos. Quote, Greek, good, brave. Readers who are not classical philologists may wonder as they read the section how well taken Nietzsche's points about the Greeks are. In this connection, one could obviously cite a vast literature, but in this brief commentary, it will be sufficient to quote Professor Gerald F. Ellis's monumental study, Aristotle's Poetics, The Argument, a work equally notable for its patient and thorough scholarship and its spirited defense of some controversial interpretations. On the points at issue here, Ellis's comments are not, I think, controversial, and that is the reason for citing them here. Quote, the dichotomy is mostly taken for granted in Homer. There are not many occasions when the heaven-wide gulf between heroes and commoners even has to be mentioned. Still, one finds good, esthloi, and bad, kakoi, explicitly contrasted a fair number of times. In the 7th and 6th centuries BC, on the other hand, the antithesis grows common. In Theognis it amounts to an obsession. Greek thinking begins with, and for a long time holds to the proposition that mankind is divided into good and bad, and these terms are quite as much social, political, and economic as they are moral. The dichotomy is absolute and exclusive for a simple reason. It began as the aristocrats' view of society and reflects their idea of the gulf between themselves and the others. In the minds of a comparatively small and close-knit group like the Greek aristocracy, there are only two kinds of people, we and they. And of course, we are the good people, the proper, decent, good-looking, rightful-thinking ones, while they are the rascals, the poltroons, the good-for-nothings. Aristotle knew and sympathized with this older aristocratic practical ideal, not as superior to the contemplative, but at least as next best to it. Unquote. Footnote. Unquote. Back to the main body. Quote, the root of the word coined for this, ethslos, signifies one who is, who possesses reality, who is actual, who is true, then, with a subjective turn, the true as the truthful. In this phase of conceptual transformation, it becomes a slogan and catchword of the nobility and passes over entirely into the sense of noble, as distinct from the lying common man, which is what Theognis takes him to be, and how he describes him, until finally, after the decline of the nobility, the word is left to designate nobility of soul, and becomes, as it were, ripe and sweet. In the word kakos, meaning bad, ugly, ill-born, mean, craven, as in delos, Greek for cowardly, worthless, vile, wretched, the plebeian in contradistinction to the agathos, Greek meaning good, well-born, gentle, brave, capable, cowardice is emphasized. This perhaps gives an indication in which direction one should seek the etymological origin of agathos, which is susceptible of several interpretations. The Latin malus, beside which I set melas, malus meaning bad, melas meaning black or dark in Greek, may designate the common man as the dark-colored, above all as the black-haired man, as the pre-Aryan occupant of the soil of Italy, who was distinguished most obviously from the blonde, that is Aryan conqueror race by his color. Gaelic, at any rate, offers us a precisely similar case, Finn, 
For example, in the name, Fin Gao, the distinguishing word for nobility. Finally, for the good, noble, pure, originally meant the blonde-headed, in contradistinction to the dark, black-haired aboriginal inhabitants. The Celts, by the way, were definitely a blonde race. It is wrong to associate traces of an essentially dark-haired people, which appear on the more careful ethnographical maps of Germany, with any sort of Celtic origin or blood mixture, as Virchow still does. It is rather the pre-Aryan people of Germany who emerge in these places. The same is true of virtually all Europe. The suppressed race has gradually recovered the upper hand again, in coloring, shortness of skull, perhaps even in the intellectual and social instincts. Who can say whether modern democracy, even more modern anarchism and especially that inclination for commune, for the most primitive form of society, which is now shared by all the socialists of Europe, does not signify in the main a tremendous counterattack, and that the conqueror and master race, the Aryan, is not succumbing physiologically too? I believe I may venture to interpret the Latin bonus, meaning good, as the warrior, provided I am right in tracing bonus back to an earlier duonus. Compare bellum equals duellum equals duenlum, which seems to me to contain duonus. Therefore, bonus, as the man of strife, of dissension, duo, as the man of war, one sees what constituted the goodness of a man in ancient Rome. Our German gut, good, even does it not signify the godlike, the man of godlike race? And is it not identical with the popular, originally noble, name of the Goths? The grounds for this conjecture cannot be dealt with here. Unquote. In the very beginning of this section, Nietzsche seems to be suggesting that this is meant for a small audience, a group of intellectuals, likely philologists like himself, an example of elitism to be sure. If this is the case, it gives us an idea of why he feels comfortable speaking about the matters contained in this section as he does, meaning that he seems to assume a fair bit of familiarity on the part of the reader with Greek history and philosophy. It also seems to have a never-mind-the-haters tone to it. Fortunately for us, the translator Walter Kaufman has provided some informative footnotes to help those who aren't so familiar to pick out the important points. In the section, Nietzsche presents us with various Latin and Greek words associated with good and bad, and talks a little of how their meanings have changed over time. He speculates a bit about related words and how their respective meanings may have become conflated. And here's where things get uncomfortable. First, he references a quote from the Roman poet Horace, which references how people of low moral character came to be thought of as people of black or dark character, and that this may be how black-haired people came to be thought of as low and subsequently bad, according to the old meaning of bad, which was associated with plebeian or common people, low people as it were. Of course, instinctively, this offends our 21st century liberal sensibilities, but when we look long enough at the etymologies of words we commonly use, we tend to stop being shocked by them. In fact, many like to use them as history lessons in themselves. Nietzsche is no different. We often find terms in common use today to have uncomfortable origins, as they're often rooted in thinking determined by the power relationships in place at the time they were coined. One such word that comes to mind is a still sometimes used word for wife in Japan. Kanai, composed of two characters, ka and nai, which literally mean, respectively, house and inside so that the word wife may literally mean inside the house in Japanese. In the second to last part of this section, Nietzsche talks about the blonde Celts, an Aryan conqueror race and pre-Aryan dark-haired inhabitants of Germany. He talks of blood mixing and how it has led to socialist thinking throughout Europe. 
Those familiar with his political views know that he wasn't excited about socialism at all. Anyway, it seems that Nietzsche is taking a jab at those who promoted the idea of an Aryan master race. For them, the racists, their sense of superiority was derived from scientific data interpreted in ways favorable to their ideologies. Nietzsche thought, however, that their misguided sense of supremacy came not from such scientific endeavors, but from the association of the concepts good and pure with being fair-haired. Remember, according to his way of thinking, when one people conquered another, they imposed their values on their conquered subjects. Following this line of thinking, a people who were generally fair-haired and whose words for good and pure meant to them fair-haired, would pass their words for good and pure onto their subjects, and over time, the fact that such words were first put into play after a one-time power struggle would become less of a factor in influencing their thinking. People would just see the words pure and good and their connection to being fair-haired as an inherent and unavoidable part of the language. It seems Nietzsche thought that this was the origin of racist thinking among the descendants of Northern Europeans. Of course, his theory only holds up if, as he states, Virchow was wrong, and that the Celts were indeed a blonde race. Anyway, there is quite a bit of racist language here, and all I'll do is encourage you to do some investigations on your own into what scholars have said about Nietzsche's attitude toward race and racism. Some are more charitable than others. For the sake of our purpose here, though, let's get back to his ideas on the origins of morals in the Western world. Section 6. Quote, To this rule that a concept denoting political superiority always resolves itself into a concept denoting superiority of soul, it is not necessarily an exception, although it provides occasions for exceptions, when the highest caste is at the same time the priestly caste, and therefore emphasizes in its total description of itself a predicate that calls to mind its priestly function. It is then, for example, that pure and impure confront one another for the first time as designations of station, and here, too, there evolves a good and a bad in a sense no longer referring to station. One should be warned, moreover, against taking these concepts, pure and impure, too ponderously or broadly, not to say symbolically. All the concepts of ancient man were rather at first incredibly uncouth, coarse, external, narrow, straightforward, and altogether unsymbolical in meaning to a degree that we can scarcely conceive. The pure one is from the beginning merely a man who washes himself, who forbids himself certain foods that produce skin ailments, who does not sleep with the dirty women of the lower strata, who has an aversion to blood, no more, hardly more. On the other hand, to be sure, it is clear from the whole nature of an essentially priestly aristocracy why antithetical valuations could in precisely this instance soon become dangerously deepened, sharpened, and internalized. And indeed, they finally tore chasms between man and man that a very Achilles of a free spirit would not venture to leap without a shudder. There is from the first something unhealthy in such priestly aristocracies, and in the habits ruling in them which turn them away from action and alternate between brooding and emotional explosions, habits which seem to have as their almost invariable consequence that intestinal morbidity and neurasthenia which has afflicted priests at all times but as to that which they themselves devised as a remedy for this morbidity. Must one not assert that it has ultimately proved itself a hundred times more dangerous in its effects than the sickness it was supposed to cure? Mankind itself is still ill with the effects of this priestly naivety in medicine. Think, for example, of certain forms of diet, abstinence from meat, for example, of fasting, of sexual continence, of flight into the wilderness... 
the Weir-Mitchell isolation cure, without to be sure the subsequent fattening and overfeeding which constitute the most effective remedy for the hysteria induced by the ascetic ideal. Add to these the entire anti-sensualistic metaphysic of the priest that makes men indolent and over-refined, their auto-hypnosis in the manner of fakirs and brahmins, Brahma used in the shape of a glass knob and a fixed idea, and finally the only two comprehensible satiety with all this, together with the radical cure for it, nothingness, or God, the desire for uno mystica with God, is the desire of the Buddhist for nothingness, nirvana, and no more. For with the priests, everything becomes more dangerous, not only cures and remedies, but also arrogance, revenge, acuteness, profligacy, love, lust to rule, virtue, disease. But it is only fair to add that it was on the soil of this essentially dangerous form of human existence, the priestly form, that man first became an interesting animal, that only here did the human soul in a higher sense acquire depth and become evil. And these are the two basic respects in which man has hitherto been superior to other beasts. Unquote. Nietzsche's basic premise, that the notion of goodness was originally associated with being of a high station, or as he puts it, quote, political superiority always resolves itself into a concept denoting superiority of soul, unquote doesn't exclude the possibility of a priestly ruling class. In fact, he says here that it wasn't rare for the highest caste to also be the priestly caste in a society. Since priests are generally concerned with the concepts of purity and impurity, in societies where the priestly caste represents the highest caste, you have the ruling class concerned with types of virtuous behavior not normally taken into consideration by, say, warrior ruling classes. It follows, then, that notions of good and bad, which were originally associated strictly with the ruling class, evolved to include concepts of purity and impurity. Nietzsche isn't specific at all concerning an idea of when in human history this took place, and he cautions us to keep in mind that if you go far enough backward along the timeline of human history, you get to a level of existence primitive, quote, to a degree we can scarcely conceive, unquote. Originally, according to Nietzsche, to be pure was to be concerned with personal hygiene, dietary restrictions, and restricting sexual habits to one's own class or nearby classes, for example. However, he says that such restrictions put upon natural human desires led to extreme forms of self-denial, ways of living that, while supposed to improve one's health, actually contributed to the degradation of it. Taken to such extremes and then promoted as good, such ways come to be thought of as good in themselves with little or no regard for their origins, and consequently priestly thinking became more dangerous. The upside of this, for Nietzsche, is that, quote, it was on the soil of this essentially dangerous form of human existence, the priestly form, that man first became an interesting animal, that only here did the human soul in a higher sense acquire depth and become evil, and these are the two basic respects in which man has hitherto been superior to other beasts. Unquote. In short, in attempting to purify their souls, people become more introspective and thus came to understand human psychology on a deeper level, which led inevitably to manipulative mental mischief, or as it were, evil. Section 7. Quote, One will have divined already how easily the priestly mode of valuation can branch off from the knightly aristocratic and then develop into its opposite. This is particularly likely when the priestly caste and the warrior caste are in jealous opposition to one another and are unwilling to come to terms. The knightly aristocratic value judgments presupposed a powerful physicality, a flourishing, abundant, even overflowing health, together with that which serves to preserve it, 
War, adventure, hunting, dancing, war games, and in general all that involves vigorous, free, joyful activity. The priestly noble mode of valuation presupposes, as we have seen, other things. It is disadvantageous for it when it comes to war. As is well known, the priests are the most evil enemies. But why? Because they are the most impotent. It is because of their impotence that in them hatred grows to monstrous and uncanny proportions, to the most spiritual and poisonous kind of hatred. The truly great haters in world history have always been priests. Likewise, the most ingenious haters, other kinds of spirit, hardly come into consideration when compared with the spirit of priestly vengefulness. Human history would be altogether too stupid a thing without the spirit that the impotent have introduced into it. Let us take at once the most notable example. All that has been done on earth against the noble, the powerful, the masters, the rulers, fades into nothing compared with what the Jews have done against them. The Jews, that priestly people, who in opposing their enemies and conquerors were ultimately satisfied with nothing less than a radical revaluation of their enemies' values, that is to say, an act of the most spiritual revenge, for this alone was appropriate to a priestly people, the people embodying the most deeply repressed priestly vengefulness. It was the Jews who, with awe-inspiring consistency, dared to invert the aristocratic value equation, good equals noble equals powerful equals beautiful equals happy equals beloved of God, and to hang on to this inversion with their teeth, the teeth of the most abysmal hatred, the hatred of impotence, saying the wretched alone are the good, the poor, the impotent, lowly alone are the good, the suffering, deprived, sick, ugly alone are pious, alone are blessed by God. Blessedness is for them alone, and you, the powerful and the noble, are on the contrary, the evil, the cruel, the lustful, the insatiable, the godless to all eternity, and you shall be in all eternity the unblessed, accursed, and damned. One knows who inherited this Jewish revaluation. In connection with the tremendous and immeasurably fateful initiative provided by the Jews, through this most fundamental of all declarations of war, I recall the proposition I arrived at on a previous occasion, Beyond Good and Evil, section 195, that with the Jews there begins the slave revolt in morality. That revolt, which has a history of 2,000 years behind it and which we no longer see because it has been victorious. Unquote. Beyond Good and Evil, section 195, quote, The Jews, a people born for slavery, as Tacitus and the whole ancient world says, the chosen people, as they themselves say and believe, the Jews achieved that miracle of inversion of values thanks to which life on earth has for a couple of millennia acquired a new and dangerous fascination. Their prophets fused rich, godless, evil, violent, sensual into one, and were the first to coin the word world as a term of infamy. It is in this inversion of values, with which is involved the employment of the word for poor as a synonym of holy and friend, that the significance of the Jewish people resides. With them, there begins the slave revolt in morals. Unquote. In section 7, Nietzsche talks about how the values promoted by the clergy can come into conflict with those of the knightly aristocratic ruling class. Where the warrior ruling class favors physical power, beauty, abundance, war, and adventure as a means to preserve it, as well as cultural activities meant to promote it, like dancing and sports, as we've seen, the priestly caste favors self-sacrifice, denial of natural human tendencies, the clergy could not support war, as it is not in line with the virtues it has espoused. 
Nietzsche says it's the impotence of the priestly caste that causes hatred to grow within them. Though he points out this fostering of hatred leads to something, as he puts it, monstrous and uncanny, it seems he feels that history would be rather dull without, quote, the spirit of priestly vengefulness. At this point, he introduces his idea of the radical revaluation of values that came to lay the foundations of morality in the Western world, foundations put down by, he says, the Jewish people. Prior to this, goodness was associated with the aristocracy. If you were an aristocrat, you were good, you were powerful, you were beautiful, you were loved by God. The new morality, however, starts with being loved by God, and from there you are powerful, you are good. So how does one become loved by God? You are wretched, poor, and lowly. You are suffering, deprived, sick, and ugly. If you are these things, you are pious and therefore good. The noble and powerful, on the other hand, don't just get called bad. They get called evil, cruel, lustful, insatiable, and godless. Nietzsche then says, quote, One knows who inherited this Jewish revaluation, unquote. And by this we understand he's talking about the Christians. He claims that a 2,000-year-long slave revolt took place, initiated by the Jewish people, and with Christianity that revolt being victorious became the origin of Western values, though most of us in the present era are quite unaware of this. History is written by the victors, as they say. Section 8. Quote, But you do not comprehend this? You are incapable of seeing something that required 2,000 years to achieve victory? There is nothing to wonder at in that. All protracted things are hard to see, to see whole. That, however, is what has happened. From the trunk of that tree of vengefulness and hatred, Jewish hatred, the profoundest and sublimest kind of hatred, capable of creating ideals and reversing values, the like of which has never existed on earth before, there grew something equally incomparable. A new love, the profoundest and sublimest kind of love, and from what other trunk could it have grown? One should not imagine it grew up as the denial of that thirst for revenge, as the opposite of Jewish hatred. No, the reverse is true. That love grew out of it as its crown, as its triumphant crown spreading itself farther and farther into the purest brightness and sunlight, driven as it were into the domain of light, and the heights in pursuit of the goals of that hatred, victory, spoil, and seduction, by the same impulse that drove the roots of that hatred deeper and deeper and more and more covetously into all that was profound and evil. This Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate gospel of love, this Redeemer who brought blessedness and victory to the poor, the sick and the sinners, was he not this seduction in its most uncanny and irresistible form, a seduction and bypath to precisely those Jewish values and new ideals? Did Israel not attain the ultimate goal of its sublime vengefulness precisely through the bypath of this Redeemer, this ostensible opponent and disintegrator of Israel? Was it not part of the secret black art of truly grand politics of revenge, of a far-seeing, subterranean, slowly advancing and premeditated revenge, that Israel must itself deny the real instrument of its revenge before all the world as a mortal enemy and nail it to the cross so that all the world namely all the opponents of Israel, could unhesitatingly swallow just this bait? And could spiritual subtlety imagine any more dangerous bait than this? Anything to equal the enticing, intoxicating, overwhelming, and undermining power of that symbol of the Holy Cross, that ghastly paradox of a god on the cross, that mystery of an unimaginable, ultimate cruelty and self-crucifixion of God for the salvation of man? 
What is certain, at least, is that Subak Signo, Israel, with its vengefulness and revaluation of all values, has hitherto triumphed again and again over all other ideals, over all nobler ideals. Unquote. This section mostly speaks for itself. It should go without saying, but the conspiratorial tone of this section doesn't imply that Nietzsche actually believed that the revaluation of values and subsequent slave revolt was literally planned. As often is the case, he uses dramatic license here. Movements seem to take on lives of their own, however, and we often lose sight of how they began, which means those who started them are often lost to history. Here it seems clear that Nietzsche would like the reader not to forget how it all started. Footnote 1. In Oxigno, under this sign, in Latin. At the end of the section, he makes reference to the fateful decision by Roman Emperor Constantine to conquer, under this sign, which refers to Constantine's alleged adoption of a Christian cross-like symbol as a battle symbol, after seeing in a vision it and the words, under this sign, you shall conquer, apparently written in Greek. Constantine I is often credited as the one who made it possible for Christianity to spread throughout the West. Next time, we'll cover sections 9 through 12, and we'll be introduced to Nietzsche's idea of ressentiment. Thank you for listening. Until next time.